Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of John in the 18th chapter. John chapter 18. We're into the second section of this chapter of John. The first section was his arrest in Gethsemane, and it ran down through verse 11. This section runs from verse 12 down through 27, and it's his trial before the Jews. And then we have his trial before Pilate. So we're at verse 12, and let me read down to verse 18. Jesus has been arrested by the mob in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter tried to resist those arresting Jesus. Jesus told him to put his sword back in his sheath, healed Melchus's right ear, and said he was going to drink his father's cup. The next verse is verse 12. Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. And the servants and officers stood there, who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. And amen. Back to verse 12. We have our Lord Jesus Christ here on his way to the cross to drink the cup that his father gave him, and he wasn't going to be hindered from doing so. He wasn't going to call on the angels to rescue him, and he wasn't going to let Peter try to fight off the mob. He was going to drink the father's cup so that we wouldn't have to drink it, and instead we would drink the cup of salvation, which is what the Bible describes it in Psalm 116 and verse 13, and we get to drink that cup forever because he drank this bitter cup on this night. But then the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews, after identifying himself to the, uh, the mob that was there and exchanging with Judas and the band, Jesus also corrected Peter in those first 11 verses. The band of men and officers that we have described here were from the chief priests and from the Pharisees, because that's what we were told in verse 3. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither. So that's where they came from. This was from the ruling, ruling body of the Jews. You know, the word Sanhedrin is not in our Bible. It's a Greek word, but it describes the body that ruled the Jews. They didn't have a civil ruler because Pilate wasn't theirs. Herod wasn't theirs. Those were Roman appointees. Their leadership went up to the high priest. And at this time, Caiaphas is that high priest. And under him are other chief priests and priests emeritus and all kinds of priests. Then there were scribes. 
that dealt in the law of God. Then there were Pharisees, the strict conservative denomination of the Jews. Then there were Sadducees, the liberal denomination of the Jews. And there were Levites that weren't quite priests, but they were from the religious tribe of Israel. And all of them together, and there's more than I listed, were the ruling body of the Jews, especially their leaders of those different groups. And so they have sent this band to arrest and bring Jesus back to Jerusalem about the two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem. This one captain that we have described here in this verse is described as plural by Luke in his account. We accept both. One man can be looking at an event that takes place and describe one particular officer that stands out, and he could have been one in charge, but he had other officers under him, and another writer is going to look at it and just lump them all together as officers, plural, and we don't object, and we don't pick on the Bible, and we don't criticize it, nor nor are we skeptics about the Bible. I like the fact that Luke says plural officers and John says officer so that it weeds out those that believe the Bible. I believe the Bible and I love that variation. In fact, I get very excited when I read when Jehu rode into the capital of Israel, Samaria, (laughs) Jezebel stuck her head out and warned him that what he was was going to do, and that was to kill her, what he was going to do was going to bring judgment on his head. And he said, is there anyone on my side? And two or three eunuchs looked out. And the Bible says two or three eunuchs. Now, Holy Spirit, and I mean this in total reverence and respect, Lord, was it two or was it three? I said two or three. I like it. Amen. Sometimes we'll say, well, there were two or three there. There were two or three, but I didn't buy one, honey. Two or three, two or three, we use it all the time, and we don't object, but men want to object about the Bible using the same language we do, and I I love it. There were two or three. That's good enough for me when I read the Bible, and I enjoy the fact that it's worded that way. You might think being knocked to the ground and the healing of an ear should alter this mob. In the previous five minutes... They have been knocked to the ground by Jesus saying, I am he. Knocked backward and to the ground, they could easily have numbered 500. Jesus met them. They did not find Jesus. Jesus met them and said, whom seek ye? 500 of you out here in the middle of the night with flames, with uh, lanterns and torches and weapons? Whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Bam. They all fall to the ground. That should have got their attention. Then when they get back up, they come after him again. And he said, I asked you, whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth. I've told you that I am he. Since I've told you that I am he, and that's the only name on your warrant, let these other 11 go their way. Then Peter steps forward to show how much zeal he had and does a head blow on Melchus, a servant of the high priest, and cuts off his right ear. And Jesus, according to another gospel account, puts that ear back on and heals them right in front of them. You would think, you would think, no, that's only because you've got sanctified thinking. No, the world doesn't think that way. You would think when you go outside and see a sunrise that you would bless the creator God that made it. They don't. You would think that when you see a sunset, You would bless the creator God that made that. 
They don't. You would think when they see a hummingbird or the petals of a rose or a baby's eyelashes, they might bless the Creator that made all that. They don't. You would think that after ten plagues in the nation of Egypt, that Pharaoh would not take his chariot down into the Red Sea. You would think. Very important for us to learn this lesson right here. Because this is a lesson of the whole Bible. Unless God opens our eyes, opens our ears, opens our minds and our hearts, we will not think, see, hear, or understand the truth that is visible to everyone. Romans 1 is absolutely certain. Every person born into this world that has any capability of understanding anything knows the truth that there is a creator. They hold the truth in unrighteousness. It was made plain to them. You need to read it. Romans 1.18, down through about verse 20, will tell you that they understood it. But their hearts were hardened because they do not want a God telling them how to live. And Jesus had told them how to live. Jesus explained why they hated him. Remember what it was? There was one specific reason. Why do the Jews hate Jesus? Because he reproved them and exposed their sins. They had no sin till I came along and exposed their, their hypocrisy in religion, their money changers in the temple, the things that they did. They did not want him. So they were going to get rid of him. You know, we look at it and say, you would think, you thank God for thinking like that. Lord, improve our thinking. Help us to think divinely. Help us to think scripturally. Let us not think according to our lusts or to this world. Thank you, young man, for reminding us about what some of us had to endure in psychology. And all the questions that you started off with are a sample of what they all want to ask and what they don't know how to answer. They can ask the questions, but they don't have any answers. And we have both. And we can certainly have the answers for them. Not only did these men know of other miracles, but they just had two miracles in the previous five minutes. But they still take Jesus in verse 12. They take him. They put their hands on my Lord. It should upset you. They put their hands on my Lord and they bound him. We don't know if there were leg irons. We don't know how tight his hands were together. I can tell you things that I've read so tightly bound that blood comes out the end of your fingers. But I, don't, I go with the Bible and I stick there. We don't know if there was a chain around his neck and he was dragged back into Jerusalem. We do not know, but they took him and bound him. And for me to read that infuriates me that they touched my Lord. But he will have the last laugh Amen. and I will help you see that before today's over. Amen. Never underestimate total depravity of all men and the rebellion in your own soul. There is within us latent rebellion against God, just like they had. And if the Lord doesn't save us from that, and he has by regenerating us, that delivers us from the power of it. But what delivers us from the practice of it? Our conversion. Us getting back into the word of God in Psalm 119 to convert ourselves and always be thinking and doing things the Lord's way. We need to pray like David did 
against sins, secret and presumptuous. Psalm 19.12 is David praying against secret sins. Psalm 19.13 is David praying against presumptuous sins. This Thursday is a prayer meeting at the pastor's home, and it will be praying Psalm 19.12 and Psalm 19.13, that the Lord will deliver us from secret faults and from presumptuous sins, that they will not have dominion over us. This generation of Jews was cursed and blinded by God for rejecting the truth that he had offered them through his law and through his prophets. And so they were blinded. They were a cursed generation. So this shouldn't surprise us if we know the prophecies of Scripture. Jesus had already explained these things, even in John, and he did as well in the other Gospels. So we shouldn't be surprised when we, we see this total, total lack of comprehension of what Jesus had just done to them and all the other miracles that were well known. But they took him and bound him. Remember your Lord Jesus Christ. He resisted the crown they tried to put on his head in John chapter 6, but he humbled himself and submitted to the cross they put him on. I like that about him. He did not come to be made a king by Israel. He came to be crucified by Israel and then for God to crown him with glory and honor in heaven. Amen. He had told Peter the Father's will for his life trial and death, and he gave himself up to it. Cuff me. Go ahead. Here I am. I'm on your warrant. I'm the only name that you've mentioned. Take me, but let these 11 go. And the 11 were happy to go quickly. That is, they all fled, as the other gospel accounts tell us. This mob would have had no power against the Lord Jesus Christ if he had not intended their evil deed. It was his plan. It was the Father's plan. They wouldn't have been able to touch him. He had walked through their midst on other occasions. When he had gone to his hometown of Nazareth and preached in their synagogue, they rose up in fury against him, though when his sermon started, it says they wondered at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. But as he preached doctrine, their wondering at his gracious words turned to fury, and they rose up, led him to the brow of a hill, and we're going to throw him down a cliff, off a cliff. And he, turning around, walked through the midst of them. They couldn't touch him. He had hid himself in John chapter 8 in the temple and walked out of the temple and out of the city of Jerusalem, and they couldn't touch him. He that healed withered hands could have cut off their hands with less than a word as they reached for him to take him. He could have called 12 legions of angels, but he didn't. He could have done any infinite number of things to them, but he didn't because this is why he came. For me to read verse 12 is humbling and irritating and angering because that's my Lord. And it should affect you that way. At the same time, he allowed it to happen, intended for it to happen, and was willing for it to happen so that he could die for us. Unbelievable love, mercy, and grace in the crucifixion. What foolish men to think they could bind him that was Lord over all laws of nature. Is he Lord over the law of na the laws of fire? Amen. Were there three men in a fiery furnace that came? There isn't even a smell of smoke on these guys. 
Did we just throw them in that fiery furnace that I had heated up seven times higher than it was designed by its engineers? There's no smell? Let me check their eyelashes. Their eyelashes are intact. Now that's laws over the... This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Cuff me. You know what we would do if we had power and we had enemies wanting to do that to us? We'd use our power over the laws of nature. Binding him, binding Jesus, was stupider than binding Samson with two new ropes. Samson had called some havoc in Philistia. And he was among the he was in the tribe of Judah at the time. And so the Philistines came and the, the, the Jews didn't want to fight the Philistines. So they said, What do you want? They said, We want Samson. So they went and got Samson and said, We're sorry, but we gotta we gotta turn you over to the Philistines. He said, Okay, it's it's fine with me. Tie me with two new ropes. So they tied them all up with two new ropes, and you know, there goes Samson to meet the Philistines. And he snapped them like burnt flax and killed 1,000 with the jawbone of an ass. For these men to think that they could bind the Lord of glory, Samson couldn't be bound. Binding him was stupider than imprisoning the apostles for preaching in Acts chapter 5. Because it was evening, the Jews put the apostles into prison. In the morning, they called the Sanhedrin together, and I'm using that word for the sake of the leadership of the Jews. They called the Sanhedrin together and then said, Bring the prisoners. Well, they went to the prison. They came back and said, We're sorry, but there's no one there. Then another man pops into that court and says, They're in the temple preaching. I lo- Don't you love it? Amen. Reading the book of Acts is wonderful. That is church history that should light you up. Right. It's stupider than binding Peter and putting him in prison, chained to a couple soldiers with 16 Roman soldiers, committed and assigned to keep him there. Because an angel of the Lord came in that night, the chains fell off, kicked Peter in the side, wake up, let's get out of here. Peter gets up, not thinking he's in a dream, walks out, the prison doors just keep opening. He goes through one ward, one section, into the outer section, and then the gates that lead to the city open of their own accord for him. You're not going to bind the Lord Jesus Christ. Those were his apostles. He delivered his apostles that way. He delivered his apostles that way. Just think what he could have done to deliver himself, but he didn't for you and me. And as we sang last Lord's Day, he went to the cross alone for you and me. So me gets upset that he went to the cross that way. But he had to, or the judgment of God would be upon all of us. We are not told how they bound him and what they used, but Judas had told them, hold him fast. In another gospel account, Judas says, I'm going to identify the one that you're supposed to arrest, but then hold him fast. Jesus was going willing. That shows how much Judas understood of the intent of Jesus on earth to be our Redeemer. The Jews were filled with such malice and rage that they might have done anything to him. And we, we don't know any further than this, but we've got this verse in the Bible. God delivered Isaac. Isaac was bound on an altar. Did God deliver him? Isaac, Joseph was bound. God deliver him to the throne of Egypt. Samson was bound, and I went over that already. And and God's going to undo the bonds of the Lord Jesus Christ, even the bond of death, by resurrecting him from the dead very shortly and putting him at his own right hand. 
Verse 13, and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Led him away first to Annas. The band of men that came from the chief priests and Pharisees took bound Jesus to Annas first. Annas had served as high priest long before this. And when you read the, when you read the gospel accounts, you're going to find that Annas was a high priest in Luke chapter 3. You're going to find that Annas was a high priest in the book of Acts. But Caiaphas right now is the priest from John's angle on this whole thing. And Annas was probably a priest emeritus. When that happens, churches do that sometimes. They'll, they'll call a new pastor, and the pastor that has served them for many years, they will let him retain the title. So he's pastor emeritus. And that emeritus means in title, for, for the sake of honor. And so at times, if you read the accounts, when John the Baptist began preaching three and a half years earlier, Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. But right now, John wants us to know that Caiaphas is the high priest. And he's the one that's going to make the decisions. Whether the house was on the way or it was an apartment in the palace where Caiaphas lived and was going to hold his court, we don't know. But he took him there first and he wasn't there very long at all because Annas then sent him on to Caiaphas. And that's, we're told that in verse 24, now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas the high priest. Verse 24, in what it's describing, is not right there in the timeline. It's right there in your Bible at verse 24, but in the timeline, it's right after verse 13. Because of the use of the past perfect tense in verse 24, now Annas had sent him. And that's after the first little bit of verse 13. And led him away to Annas first, and then he sent him to Caiaphas. Because his trial is before Caiaphas, that John identifies here for us as the high priest. You know, these, this mob did not put Jesus in hold until morning. You know, we put them in detention centers to be tried the next day. This is the middle of the night. They were in a rage to get at Jesus Christ, and they wanted to do it during the middle of the night, so first thing in the morning they could go when it was early to Pilate and get the whole chains of condemnation and crucifixion going to get it over with before the common people could resist them. So it is, it is push, push, push during this night, but it didn't happen one second faster than God had always planned it to happen. Right. Amen. Jesus had time for his last supper. Jesus had time for a leisurely, leisurely discussion with John chapters 13 and 14 with his apostles. Then they walked on the road to Bethany, and he had the leisurely discussion of John chapters 15 and 16. And then he had time to stop and pray chapter 17. He had time to go into Gethsemane, pray three times, have his disciples fall asleep. Three times all of that was by the plan of God. But they're pushing it. They're pushing it. No, no hold until the morning. All these men are up in the middle of the night, and they're going to be up all night. It does not matter. The rage in men for what? Because Jesus was righteous. Why did Cain hate Abel? Abel was righteous, and Cain wasn't. Good enough. That's all that it takes. That is the animosity that's in this world of the wicked against the righteous. It hasn't changed since Cain and Abel. And if you live godly, they'll hate you. That's right. If they don't hate you, you need to ask why. Because the Bible says, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer 
persecution. Since Jesus was perfect in all matters of civil duty, remember they came to try to catch him about paying taxes to Caesar? He passed that one so beautiful and he gave them a lesson that is still valuable to us today. De jure laws mean nothing. Constitutional laws mean nothing when there's been a change in government. And so the de facto laws of Caesar, though he was an oppressor, though he was a foreigner, though he had taken over the nation, that's true law. That's de facto law. That's the law of the iron boot. That's the law of the sword. And so the tax laws of Israel had changed. And so Jesus was on Caesar's side. So there was nothing that way they could get him on. They had to get him on a religious matter. And so they have him before a religious court. And it's this religious court that is going to accuse him of blasphemy. They only had three sins, false prophet and blasphemy and idolatry. The only three sins that they could get him for in a religious court, but they get him for blasphemy if you've read the gospel accounts, and they take him to Pilate and say, this man deserves to die. Pilate says, that's your business. Blasphemy, what is that? Go kill him yourself. We don't have the right to kill him. You know, all that was by the plan of God as well. Because the Jews would have stoned him to death and broken his bones, but he had to die a Roman death. It's just all perfect. It's perfect. Every single detail, right down to the right ear. And what was that man's name? Melchus. Oh, that's in the Bible too? The man's name had his right ear cut off in the Bible. Because John wanted us to have details, and he gave us many details. You know, brethren... Jesus had to be taken before a special court, a religious court, because that's all they could get on him. They couldn't report him to Pilate. What's Pilate going to do about Jesus? Jesus wasn't doing anything against the Roman government. Remember Daniel? They vetted Daniel after 70 years in office. They couldn't find a single fault in him until they passed a law against his religion. Let that be true of us. That the only way they can get us is that they pass a law pertaining to our religion. Not because we've done anything against their laws. Let's be like Daniel. Let's be like the Lord Jesus Christ that way. We can speculate about why Caiaphas wanted this mob to take Jesus to Annas first. Annas was his father-in-law. Annas had served as high priest earlier. Annas was highly respected And Caiaphas wanted every bit of support he could because when he went to Pilate and Herod, he wanted full Jewish support, kill Jesus. He couldn't have a divided nation or Pilate or Herod might not go through with it. So he had them all together, including a short visit with Annas. And led him away to Annas first. This is verse 13. For he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. That year... Caiaphas was the high priest. Let me, let me teach you a word right now. Simony. Some of you read Acts chapter 8 a few days ago. And in Acts chapter 8, there was a man named Simon the sorcerer. And Simon the sorcerer saw the whole city of Samaria basically being converted and baptized. That's what the Bible says. Under the preaching of Philip. And Philip was not an apostle. So the Lord held back some of the gifts that come with baptism. They did not receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. When Philip baptized in Acts chapter 8, Landon, the whole city was converted practically, but they didn't get the gift of the Holy Ghost. So then when 
Jerusalem heard that there were so many converts in Samaria, they sent some apostles up there, and the apostles could lay hands on them, and they received the gift of the Holy Ghost. That was to keep the churches to remember that the apostles were the special ministers of Jesus Christ and had the authority and were the foundation stones, not the cornerstone, but the foundation stones of the New Testament church. Right. Simon, Simon, the sorcerer, had bewitched the city of Samaria for a long time by his own enchantments and witchcraft. When he sees the apostles being able to lay on hands and the gifts of the Holy Ghost, and back then they were visible demonstrations of power of the Holy Ghost, he says, how much does it cost? I want to buy this power. Because he, he knew how much he had made by his enchantments, which are always inferior to the work of the Holy Spirit. And when he saw the power of the Holy Spirit being transferred so easily from the apostles, what does it cost me to be able to have this gift? And you can read the rest of that in Acts chapter 8. What was his name? Simon. It's called simony. What is the crime of simony? When you buy an ecclesiastical office, when you pay money to have a church office, these priests, the, the priests in Israel at this time were all messed up. You can read about it in Josephus. You can read it in your Bible by reading carefully to see it bouncing back and forth. And it, look at what it says the same year. Caiaphas was priest, because some years he wasn't, some years he was. Annas had been high priest for a number of years. Annas had five sons. They served as priests. Then his son-in-law, Caiaphas, served as priest. And so simony is a word that came into the, in our language from Acts chapter 8, but the Catholics have used it for 2,000 years in buying to be a cardinal, an archbishop, a bishop, a pope. And so the priests had done that as well. It's not important. But I just wanted, it's a lesson from Acts chapter 8. In religious circles, buying ecclesiastical offices for that cushy lifestyle and not working hard was done for money. And Josephus writes and tells us about the Roman appointments. The, Roman would put, the Romans would put a priest in for a while. Herod the Great, he wasn't even a Jew. He was an Edomite. He was a child of Esau, not a child of Jacob. But he was an appointee of the Roman government called King of the Jews, King of Judea, Herod the King, but an appointee. Verse 14, now Caiaphas was he, and this man I want you to think about. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. John is very particular. He wants us to remember this event, so he sticks it in here. And this event is just a few chapters back in John chapter 11. And you need to turn back there with me to John chapter 11 and find this event and remember us learning it a few months ago. John wants you to know what I want you to know today. Who was the worst enemy with the greatest guilt in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Caiaphas. It isn't Judas. What did Judas do? Betrayed him to Jews. What did Caiaphas do? Betrayed Jesus to foreign powers. Betrayed Jesus out of the Jews' court system to the Roman court system, to the Gentiles. 
And Jesus had taught this earlier, and we'll get to that in a minute. But right now, let's go back. What is John wanting us to know about Caiaphas in this 14th verse? He wants us to go back to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is the resurrection of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. Jesus loved Lazarus. Lazarus loved Jesus. And it was the same with his two sisters. Verse 45 of John 11. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. That's the resurrection of Lazarus. Verse 46. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council. Wow. That's the same group of people that sent the mob into Gethsemane and said, what do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, John gives us perfect details said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Beautiful. Caiaphas had a brainstorm. The chief priests and the Pharisees get together. Jesus is raising men two miles outside of Jerusalem from the dead, like Lazarus, who had been dead four days. There was a great crowd there. They've gone and told people in Jerusalem it's spreading. We're going to lose our nation. The Romans are going to come for this uprising, this conversion of religion, and they're going to take away our temple, and they're going to take away our nation. What can we do about it? They're wringing their hands. What do you do when there's a man raising the dead? That is a problem. And Caiaphas has a brainstorm. Now, when you have a brainstorm, just remember that storm could have come from the Lord. And this one comes from the Lord. Caiaphas says you don't know anything at all. You're being ridiculous. Children, wake up. There's an easy solution. All we need to do is kill one man. And we'll let Rome know that we've killed Jesus, that there is no insurrection, that there is no uprising in Israel, and the whole thing will disappear. You know, it's like governments say, and they do say it from time to time, if we assassinate this one person, many more lives will be saved. It's just a, it's just a rule of politics. Right. Kill one to save others. And that's how they justify it. And that's how they can get rid of a conscience sometimes. And sometimes it may be the prudent thing to do. But in this case, Caiaphas was saying, in order to keep Rome off our backs and to keep them from taking away our nation and changing the nice, comfortable setup we have right now, we should kill one man, this Jesus, and get this thing over with. What's the worst political conspiracy in the history of the world? The Civil War? That was a pretty good one. Um, the United Nations, the League of Nations of the previous war, what do we go? Where do we go? This is it right here. Amen. This is a political conspiracy. This is when they first discussed the matter with Caiaphas. And Caiaphas gave them the answer, ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient. Political expediency. Do whatever is convenient or helpful to accomplishing our purpose. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. That isn't the issue. Is it expedient? Right. Isn't that be Have you ever heard that before? Political expediency. Yes. Right and wrong is not the issue. Will it help us accomplish our objective? 
And so he called it, you don't got, you, you men don't, you're not thinking, you're acting like children. It's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. We should just kill Jesus so that the rest of us don't have to die and nothing's going to change. Status quo will be maintained. Those words did not come from him. Those words came from God in heaven. Because that was a prophecy about Jesus dying. And John, over there in John 11, inserts this in verses 51 and 52. And this spake he not of himself. He did not have that brainstorm without God putting it into his head. That thought that he was so dogmatic about, he know nothing at all. He is saying that to the assembled leadership of the Pharisees and chief priests, ye know nothing at all. Nor do you even consider that there's an expedient solution to this whole thing. Let's kill one man and get it over with. And that way the whole nation can be saved. Isn't that wonderful? This is the worst political conspiracy in the history of the world, and it's been turned on its ear from day one. They're conspiring together as to what would be expedient. And so John explains it in verse 51. This spake he, this spake Caiaphas, not of himself. But being high priest that year, and that means the leader of the Jews, the most powerful man in Israel, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. Because God sent Jesus to die for that nation, to save that nation, not from the Romans, but from hell, to save his people from their sins. In verse 52, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. You and me, the Gentiles, the dispersed tribes of Israel, and all the Gentiles that were God's elect. Caiaphas spoke about Jesus' redemptive plan being here in this world. Their political conspiracy was turned upside down already. What they thought that was expedient for them was expedient for God. It was not expedient for them. It ended up destroying their whole nation. Don't ever fear political conspiracies. There's a God in charge and he has a son named Jesus Christ the Lord. And he's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I trust him completely. He's playing with this earth. And he's ruling it with a rod of iron. The scepter that we sang about him swaying. Verse 53 says, Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Caiaphas said that little brief explanation of what should be done. Okay, let's take counsel. Let's hire Judas Iscariot to betray him to us in private when the crowds won't be around in the middle of the night. And we'll, we'll get rid of him through the Romans. And we'll, we'll make the Romans all happy that this little bit of upheaval, this little change in religion, this uprising will have been taken care of by killing the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so beautiful. The wisdom of Caiaphas was to kill Jesus to save Israel from the Romans. Do I need to say that again? Do you have have this clearly? I want you to think about the worst political conspiracy. It was. It was. Jews hated Gentiles. Gentiles hated the Jews. The Romans hated the Jews. Just go read about it. Because the Jews were such a nasty, stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious people. They hated each other. But they're going to come together in a conspiracy here in the, next, in the rest of this chapter. Jews and Romans. 
Pilate and Herod, they hated each other. They envied each other. They became friends over the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. All the, all the Jewish leadership. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. See, how do you know that? Go read the book of Acts. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. He's meeting with Pharisees. Are you kidding me? Do you know what Pharisees and Sadducees do in the same room? They try to tear each other apart. You say, where's that in the Bible? Acts 23. Right. When Paul stood in front of them and on trial, he sensed, ah, I've got a mixed audience, Democrats and Republicans. <laughs> he had Pharisees and Sadducees. And do you know what he said? Men and brethren. I'm a Pharisee. Present tense. I'm a Pharisee, and my father was a Pharisee, and the reason I'm standing here is because of the resurrection of the dead. Because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, and the Sadducees didn't. It took about, it took about 10 seconds, and they were tearing each other's throats. They were. You go read it. It's just beautiful. But they were together on this matter. They were together right here against Jesus Christ. That's why I'm calling it a conspiracy, and of course it was the worst one, because they were killing the most innocent man in the history of the universe. The wisdom of Caiaphas was to kill Jesus to save Israel from the Romans. The wisdom of God was for the Romans to destroy Israel for killing Jesus. The wisdom of Caiaphas was to justify the blood of one man for the nation, yet he would very shortly try to avoid guilt for that blood. He's going to, oh, when the apostles bring that blood guilt upon Caiaphas, he's going to try to deny it. The wisdom of Caiaphas was to kill one Jew to save all the Jews. The wisdom of God was for one Jew to die to save all elect Gentiles. Amen. The wisdom of Caiaphas was to sacrifice one for the nation and blame all on him. The wisdom of God was for one to be the substitute and scapegoat for the salvation of many. Amen. Trust the God of heaven. He's the God of nations. We aren't. Jesus is. The prince of the kings of the earth. The wisdom of Caiaphas did not defeat God's plan, but confirmed it. There is no counsel, nor wisdom, nor understanding against the Lord. Right. Never fear politicians. Fear the only God that rules all politicians and manipulates them. Their hearts are in his hand. He directs them as the rivers of water wherever he wants them to go and whatever he wants them to do and whatever he wants them to say. The spirit that rises up in evil rulers is under the control of Almighty God, and he's directing it every way he wants it to. Amen. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. Any wrath that rises in any ruler is from God. Not as the cause of sin itself, because that arises in the man, but in God's ordering of that, and this course of events that led to it, that leads to his purpose being accomplished here before you is this evil and vile world's most satanic political conspiracy ever. Right here in John 18 and verse 14. And John wants us to think about Caiaphas. The might of Rome's empire is in Pilate and Herod. The diabolical jewel, Jews is in Caiaphas. Their highest leader, the high priest, the replacement for Aaron. John 18 shows Jews and Gentiles, mutual haters, joined together against his son. Think, Jews and Gentiles together, Romans and Israelites together, Pilate and Herod together, Sadducees and Pharisees together, joined in murder of the most innocent man in the universe. What does God say? You, you read it last night. What does God say? 
He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. He laughs. That's why I try to help you laugh with him. The Lord shall have them in derision. That's ridiculing laughter. To deride someone. That's mocking laughter. That's our God. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The the Jews and the uh, Gentiles got together. The Romans got together with the Jews. Yet have I set my king. The greater sin was not Rome's Pilate or Herod, but Jewish Caiaphas. Look at John 19. Let's jump ahead to John 19 where I can show you this. Pilate is interviewing the Lord Jesus for the second time. The first one's in the last part of John 18. And then he's going to do it again in John 19. Verse 10, Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? You're just going to stand there quietly, not say anything? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? That's the ignorance of a good public education. And Pilate would have had one. Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Oh, listen, brethren, there's like five reasons Pilate knows he should not crucify Jesus Christ, but for political expediency. Isn't that a nice, comfortable sound? For political expediency, to keep my constituents happy, in this case, to keep my subjects happy, I'll go ahead and crucify him. Oh, Lord, help us. We have, someone in pres- we have someone in the president's office right now that doesn't really care about if all his constituents are happy or not. He tweets them every day, something to irritate them. And we, we're thankful for a president like that. That's why we thank the Lord for him so many times. But now what I want you to get, it, look at the last clause of verse 11. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Who delivered Jesus to Pilate? Judas certainly didn't. Caiaphas. Caiaphas. The Jewish pyramid organization org chart goes up to Caiaphas. He's planned it from John 11. John wants you to know this is the guy from John 11 in verse 14 of John chapter 18. And Jesus tells us in John 19 his role. Judas had a role, but Jesus looked past it to what was going to happen from Caiaphas of being turned over the Gentiles. And he prophesied it earlier in other Gospels that I'm not going to turn you to right now for the sake of time. What happened to the Jews in this conspiracy? This political conspiracy, the worst one in history. What happened to the Jews for it? In 40 years, they were destroyed. Jesus warned the daughters of Jerusalem of the great evil coming. When Jesus was going up to Mount Calvary, and they had to get Simon to carry the cross because he was too weak to carry it at that point in time, there were women bewailing him, and he said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Because of what was going to come on the Jewish nation. He said, If they're doing this thing in a green tree, what will they be like in a dry Green meaning the presence of the Son of God in the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. What will it be like when all spiritual influence has been pulled out in 40 AD? They were the most diabolical, devil-possessed generation in the history of the world. So said Titus, the Roman. 
So said Jesus, the Son of God. He said, when a devil is cast out of a man, the devil goes away, gets bored, can't find a place to live, and comes back. And when he sees that his house is nice, neat, and clean, no devil's there, he goes and gets seven more just like him, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Does anybody remember that that's in the Bible? So shall it be to this generation. Jesus had cast out devils, but 40 years later, they all came, and that was a devil-infested generation. And so Jesus warned those women of what was going to happen. What happened to the Romans for hurting apostles? Acts chapter 12. Herod killed James. And because he saw the Jews were, were pleased by that, he put Peter in prison to kill him. And that's, we've already mentioned that. Peter walked that night. But then what happened in that chapter? The whole chapter of Acts 12 is about this event. What happened? Herod was eaten with, by worms. Right. Herod was eaten by worms. Touch not mine anointed, the Bible says. And those, those apostles were the anointed apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is king. You don't have to worry about conspiracies. We have to worry about whether we're serving our Lord Jesus Christ and if he's on our side or better, if we're on his side, so that he's on our side. What happened to Rome for hurting Jesus and Christians? Overthrown in 476 A.D. Our God can easily turn kings to benefit his people, like Pharaoh. You know, God gave Pharaoh a vision of seven fat years and seven lean years, and that wasn't for the sake of Egypt. That was for the sake of the children of God, so that Joseph could be the ruler of Egypt and invite his dad to come down with how many souls? The 70 souls of the family of Jacob was more important to him than all the people of Egypt, because he's going to destroy the nation of Egypt in a few 215 years later. God can turn kings to benefit his people. Did Cyrus benefit the church of God? Cyrus the Persian, as soon as he took office, the God of heaven has given me a charge. All you Jews are welcome to leave Babylon, go back 500 miles to Jerusalem, and rebuild a temple to Jehovah. Where in the world did that come from? The God of heaven has given me a charge. Just sit back and watch. Yeah, we do our part. We do our part here, and I want to keep encouraging you to do your part. How many days is it until you vote again? You better vote. About three weeks. Because I want you to go to the polls and vote against the mob. And I don't mean the mafia. I mean the mob that assaulted Judge Kavanaugh. We do our part, but we, but we just do our part, and then we watch. That's right. They didn't, they didn't think there was a chance that the wild businessman, President, I mean, Donald Trump, Donald John Trump could become President of the United States, and he did. You know, I first saw this country going to pot, literally, but uh, back, in the, back in the 60s and 70s, and here we are. It's 2018. Look at the man we have for president. The Lord's in charge. That's what Mother Joy Taylor would say to us. The Lord's in charge. Darius. As Nehemiah is trying to build the city of Jerusalem, the temple, he has to send back to the government. Darius says, yes, we have found records that Cyrus wants you to build it. We'll pay for it. 
No taxes on you Jews over there. We'll tax everybody else around you and they'll have to pay for it. Just all, all kinds of stuff that the Lord moves kings for the benefit of his people. How about, a, how about the king that was King James VI of Scotland who became King James I of England? Any benefit from him? I'm not a Catholic. I love my King James Bible. And I hope you love your King James Bible. Oh, Lord, thank you for showing us that. He can easily turn kings to benefit his people, and I just gave you four examples. He can easily turn their worst plans for good. Balak, was he a king? He was a king. What nation? Moab. What did he do against Israel? He hired the false prophet Balaam to curse Israel. What did Balaam do? Cursed Moab and blessed Israel and couldn't stop. It just got a hold of him. And how did he get the man to do that? By a talking donkey. This is our God. And I'm, what, I, what I tried to say about President Trump shows that he's still the same God today as he was back then. They can't believe that there's such a man in the Oval Office. We can hardly believe it ourselves. But we should be trusting the Lord. Ever hear about a man named Haman? And his little conspiracy with a king named Ahasuerus? And the two of them passed legislation that all Jews would be killed on a certain day. Did God interrupt those plans? Who did Haman hate the most? Mordecai. Who did Haman have to lead around the cities, the, the streets of the capital, and give him honor like a king? Mordecai. Then, how did Haman die? On his own gallows. Then, what happened on that day that had been picked? All the Jews got to kill their enemies free. The book of Esther's in the Bible for that. The word God isn't even in the book of Esther. But God's more visible in Esther than anywhere in the Bible. The Lord protecting his people. Hold that one thought back there about whether it's Esther that doesn't make reference to God or the Lord. But you know, you know how evident it is that the Lord used Haman and Ahasuerus and Mordecai and Esther herself for the deliverance. How many of you know the man in history named the Sultan Mehmed? Sultan Mehmed. He was the Muslim that overthrew Constantinople in 1453. You say, well, how does that, that's a, that's a bad event, I guess, that the Ottoman Empire or the Muslim Empire overthrew Constantinople. How's that a good event? Because that blow on Constantinople, that Greek-speaking part of the world, blew all the manuscripts up into Europe, blew all the manuscripts up into Europe so that right. William Tyndale and those that came with him had this pre enormous supply of manuscripts to confirm the word of God and give us our Bible. 85% of your King James Bible is from William Tyndale. And 1453 drove the Greek scriptures because Muslims don't care about the Bible. So when the Muslims invaded, the scriptures came into Europe. It's a well-known fact. God can easily squash them and their grand plans. Look at Pharaoh's plans 
to use the church of God to build his pyramids. Look at Sennacherib's plans. Look at Alexander the Great's plans. They were brought to nothing by the God of heaven. This will take us to our break. What we've seen in these four verses, and I want you to remind you, what is verse 14 here for? Verse 14, John wants you to grab, John wants to grab your attention about a particular man. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Well, John, you just gave us that seven chapters earlier in John chapter 11. Is that really important? It is important to see that the number one enemy, and then it's John 19. The other gospels don't tell you these things. I'm sharing with you right now. It's John 19 says, the one that delivered me to you. Because as soon as Caiaphas got, he swore Jesus, it's not told us in John. He swore Jesus to have to speak. I adjure thee by the living God. If you're the son of God, tell us. You bet I am. You got it. I am. Mark, I am. Matthew, thou hast said. You got it. One more thing. You're going to see me coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And so John wants us to see that that man who swore Jesus to an oath, and Jesus said those things to him, and that Jesus explained to Pilate, the worst person in this whole transaction is Caiaphas for turning me over to you. You wouldn't have any power against me if God hadn't given it to you, and I wouldn't even be here if Caiaphas hadn't turned me over to you. I want you to put your trust in the Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus went through this because he chose to go through it. They bound him. They took him away. They tried him. They unjustly tried him. They betrayed him to a foreign nation that was there in Jerusalem, and he died a death for us by his choice. He drank the Father's cup that was given him so that we could drink the cup of salvation. And the other lesson that we want to, we want to learn several lessons, but another one is the depravity of man not to recognize they were dealing with the Lord of glory. But they can't recognize it until God changes them or us. And he changed us, that's why we recognize it. And never fear political conspiracies. The Lord's in charge. Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And we thank him for dying for us. Heavenly Father, bless the preaching of your word.